So three men decide to go on a road trip, and wouldn't you know it, the road is slippery, and there's a sharp curve, and the car goes over a cliff, and all three find themselves standing in front of the pearly gates of heaven. St. Peter is there, of course, and he says, Welcome, I'm glad you're here, come right in. But before you do, there is one question, one last question about your earthly life that everyone gets a chance to answer before stepping over the threshold. The question is, is there anything in particular you'd like said about you at your funeral? Even as we speak, your loved ones are making arrangements for the service, and according to our records here, St. Peter shuffles a few papers, ah yes, here it is, looks like each of you is scheduled to have a service with an open casket. And so as words of remembrance are given over your body, we wonder if there's anything specific you'd like to be said. If so, our angels can pull a few strings and make sure it happens. So the first man says, wow, that's quite an offer. And as a matter of fact, yes, I'd like them to stand over my open casket and say that I was a respected and successful professional, a leader in my field. And St. Peter nods and says, all right, very good. And he turns to the second man and says, how about you? And the second man says, well, I'd like them to stand over my open casket and say that I was someone who loved and served my family and my congregation and my community. And St. Peter nods again and says, all right, very good. And then he says, you know, those are the two most common answers we get. In fact, pretty much everyone says either one or the other of those. They want to be remembered as a great professional or as a great community member. And then he turns to the third man and he says, so how about you? Shall I put you down under professional or community? And the third man, who's been pondering things now for some time, says, neither actually. I've got a better idea. And the other two men raise their eyebrows and look at each other and say, really? Better than great professional and great community member? I can't wait to hear this. And even St. Peter seems a little taken aback and he says, Oh, all right. Tell me then, what would you like to be said at your funeral? And the third man replies, I'd like them to stand over my open casket and say, Hey, wait a minute, look, he's moving! Now, that's not the worst joke in the world, it's not bad. And like most not-bad jokes, it has a grain of truth in it, something we recognize in the punchline. For most of us, we just as soon our funeral was reversible. Death seems pretty final, and we'd like to find a way around it if we can. And that's one way to think about resurrection, as a way to cheat death. And Easter sometimes does get talked about in that way, as a kind of workaround, a prolonging of life. Jesus dies, but then returns alive again. And so we can put the question, is that the way we should think about resurrection? As, hey, wait a minute, look, he's moving. As, as hey, I thought he was gone, but now he's back. And, and maybe we will be too. We'll get to cheat death too and sit up in the casket, so to speak, and see all our friends and family there looking at us, mouths open in astonishment. Is that what we mean when we talk about resurrection? Do we mean a heartbeat has stopped and then, after a while, starts up again? That someone we thought we lost returns? Does resurrection mean resuscitation? 
Or does it mean something bigger and broader, that the world's death-dealing forces will not have the final word, that life in the end will triumph over death, and that God's love will never let us go? Does the story of Easter point to an actual life on the other side of death, or is it more a piece of poetry, a vivid icon for the idea that love and justice and peace ultimately will win? Or could it somehow be both? I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. This is part five of our seven-part series on understanding Easter. And in this episode, we're going to zero in on the mystery of resurrection. In part two of this series, we explored ten ways of looking at the cross, and ten only scratched the surface, and so it follows that there are at least as many ways of looking at resurrection. Some accounts of the cross make resurrection a kind of epilogue or denouement after the climax of Jesus' death. Other accounts make resurrection the climax of the story, with the cross being the first act that makes the second act, the resurrection, possible. The Gospel of John, interestingly enough, does neither, actually. Neither resurrection as epilogue, nor resurrection as climactic second act. In John's case, the analogy that comes to mind is a symphony with three movements. The cross is the first movement, the tragedy of tension, betrayal, and violence, all very much for the sake of what happens next. The resurrection is the second movement, a crescendo of victory to be sure, but again, very much for the sake of what happens next. So, what happens next? That's the question worth exploring. For John, what happens next is what resurrection is for. Let's start with the first movement, with tragedy, sorrow, and death. My father died just a couple of years ago of pancreatic cancer. Have you experienced death yet? Up close, I mean? Well, of course you have, one way or another. A loved one who's died, a family member, or a friend, or a beloved pet, or a dead bird you find on a sidewalk or along a trail, or a great tree in the woods who knows how old, blown down by the wind or a thousand other reminders, dramatic and mundane, that death waits for you too, and for me, that death waits for us all. Picture a death that hurts, a a person you miss. Are they gone, or do they come back from time to time? I see my dad in dreams now and again, How about you? The truth is, I see him in all kinds of places, in crowds or in a gesture or the stride of a stranger walking up ahead on the street, in a thought I know he'd enjoy or argue with. I hear him, too. I hear him in my own voice sometimes. Sometimes I wonder if he's nearby somehow. I'd like him to be. How about you? The reality of death, of loss, it can feel final, brutal, 
solid. And it can also feel porous, blurry, like shifting shards of light. No doubt, once Jesus was dead, his disciples felt all these things too. All these things and more. Guilt, disappointment, confusion, and just missing him. Wishing somehow things had gone differently. And yet, for this very reason, it's worth noting that in the story, when the risen Jesus does come back, he doesn't come back for good. He's back for 40 days, give or take, and then he ascends into heaven. He returns, in other words, really to say another goodbye, to reassure them that they're forgiven and that they're still commissioned and that death is no match for the power of love, and then to leave them again. Not to leave them alone, he says, for the Holy Spirit will come in his place. But that's just it. As John tells it, Jesus leaves to make room for the Holy Spirit and for the spirited new community of the church, which, Jesus says, will go on to do even greater things than he has done. That's the third movement of the symphony. The even greater things that his followers will do after he's gone. Jesus tells his disciples all of this before the events of his passion and his death. Take his last public teaching in John's Gospel, for example, just before his private farewell to his disciples, before he washes their feet, before he's arrested. Jesus has just entered Jerusalem on a donkey, enacting Zechariah's ancient prophecy, and the crowds are ecstatic. They've heard that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, and now here he is enacting ancient prophecy. Could this be the one? they've been waiting for? The long-promised deliverer? If we climb up on the balcony and survey John's gospel as a whole, we can see what a pivotal point this is in the story. In the gospel's opening chapter, John explains that no one has ever seen God, but Jesus has come so that, in and through seeing him, God may be known. At first, however, though Jesus is in the world, John says, the world did not know him. That's all in chapter 1. But here in chapter 12, as they look on from a distance at the crowds praising Jesus, the authorities whisper to each other, the world has gone after him. And sure enough, two foreign pilgrims in town for the Passover festival approach Jesus' disciples and ask to see Jesus. The word is out the world is starting to take notice. And so the purpose for which Jesus came in the first place, to make the unseeable God known, is at last being fulfilled. And for this very reason, storm clouds are gathering overhead. For the local authorities, the more Jesus' celebrity grows, the more the temple and the whole people are put at risk. Since the commotion may well attract attention and even provoke a preemptive attack from the Roman occupiers concerned about the potential for Jewish rebellion, Jesus is making the unseeable God seeable. 
but the crowd's reaction leads the powers that be to clamp down. And so, when the two foreign pilgrims request to see Jesus, he senses a tipping point. The hour has come, he says. Now he will step fully into view for all to see. Now, he says, he will be glorified. And what does that mean? What does being glorified look like? To answer that question, Jesus offers his final public teaching. He turns to an agricultural image, a grain of wheat that falls to the earth and dies, and then grows as a seed grows, bearing much fruit. In other words, being glorified will look like this, a human life freed from self-centered isolation, a life lived not for himself, but for others in community, a beloved community in which both self and others may flourish. And it's worth noting that Jesus isn't only referring to his death here, but rather to his death, resurrection, ascension, and beyond. He ends the teaching with, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Another reference to the old story of the Israelites and the bronze serpent in the wilderness, as we saw in the last episode. The seed dies, yes, that's the first movement in the symphony, but then rises, that's the second movement, and then bears fruit. That's the third movement. Jesus goes on to spell out this theme in his private farewell to his disciples, casting his ascension, that is, his departure, as a way of making room for his followers to do even greater things than he did. This is why he came in the first place, he declares, for this hour, this death, this rising, and above all, this ascension and the birth of a new community for the sake of all people. The essential point is that for John, Jesus doesn't come merely to die. For John, Jesus doesn't come merely to be resurrected. Rather, for John, Jesus comes to make the unseeable God seeable, not in his physical appearance, but in the choreography, the pattern of his actions, the shape of his love. Jesus comes to die to rise and to ascend, such that the Spirit may inspire a new community of justice, kindness, and humility. That, for John, is the greatest crescendo of them all, the climax of the Gospel story. The most important rising here is the rising of that new fellowship, that new community. And of course, that rising is ongoing even today and tomorrow. In this sense, as John tells it, Easter is about the resurrection not just of the child of humanity, but of the community of humanity, the whole human family, all people, as Jesus puts it. Here again, we may remember the story of God's rainbow covenant with Noah and Naamah, and with every creature on earth, and even with the earth itself. God recognizes that human hearts incline toward evil, but God covenants with us nevertheless. 
This basic tension gave rise over the years to the Hebrew prophets insisting that God will help rehabilitate and renew human hearts. Ezekiel and Isaiah, for example, declare that God will put a new heart and a new spirit within us. And Jeremiah puts the same point this way, God will make a new covenant with us, inscribed not on stone, but directly on our hearts, so to speak. In those days, the heart was thought to be the center of a person's intelligence and will. Jeremiah's idea of a new covenant is picked up by Paul and by Luke and by the designers of many communion liturgies today in which the celebrant stands at the communion table and says, quoting Jesus, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. But what's new about this covenant won't be its content. This is not a new law, but rather a new ability to follow the law. What will be new or renewed will be the inner life of human beings. This inner transformation is evoked in the Christian communion meal itself, not only by the term new covenant, but also by the very act of eating, of God's body and blood in some sense going into ours. On that day that is surely coming, Jeremiah says, the law, the way of life, will come naturally because we'll have internalized it. Then the beloved community will fully arrive, and the third movement of the Divine Symphony will come to its glorious conclusion. The Bible is full of reports of miracles, events that seem utterly impossible, marvels that are by their nature difficult to believe. And Jesus' resurrection is, we might imagine, the miracle of all miracles. But John's story of Easter points in a different direction. It's as if he says, resurrection is amazing, but in a way it's the easy part. The main event, the true miracle of miracles, is the rise of the beloved community. The community of peace and justice and love and joy. That's the greater marvel, the greater thing, the one that's truly difficult and truly necessary to believe. About a hundred years ago, a Swiss theologian pointed out that the whole idea of a miracle is that it's difficult to believe, that it pushes the limits of what we think is possible. The whole point of a miracle, in other words, is to astonish. And astonishment, after all, is a blend of belief and disbelief. Accordingly, the fitting response to a miracle isn't to be credulous, to simply believe it. For then we aren't being truly astonished. And likewise, the fitting response isn't to be incredulous, to simply disbelieve it. When it comes to miracles, faced with the choice of mere belief or mere disbelief, our answer should be neither, actually. The fitting response from this point of view is to be taken aback by the miracle stories, again and again, to be astounded, amazed, on the one hand unconvinced, but on the other hand willing to entertain the idea that what we may have thought impossible may yet be. That is what resurrection is for. It's a mystery, not to be solved or foreclosed or set aside. It's a mystery meant to continually open our minds and our hearts, to write new words within us, 
to keep us humble enough to imagine that we may not have found all the limits of possibility just yet. And that those limits, even when we do find them, aren't quite so final, so brutal, so solid as we suppose, but rather are more porous, more blurry, like shifting shards of light. Resurrection is a mystery designed to remain open. The stories go out of their way to underscore this point, in John, but also in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When the risen Jesus returns, for example, no one recognizes him, not even his disciples who knew him best and who missed him most. Jesus is back, it seems, but in a different form. Does resurrection mean resuscitation or merely a fanciful story? Neither, actually. Resurrection is an open mystery, a marvel, an astonishment, impervious to certainties, both mere belief and mere disbelief. But most of all, resurrection is a signpost, a marvel pointing ahead to an even greater marvel, the rise of a new beloved community of justice, kindness, and humility for the sake of all people, the whole creation, the ancient rainbow covenant written on our hearts. Or, as Jesus puts it, a single grain that dies and then grows and then bears much fruit. That is what resurrection is for. Strange New World is a SALT Project production written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton and Gretchen Summers. Music is by Pablo J. Garman and Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. And feel free to drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and see you next time.